probably talk about it for like two hours. But we're not going to, hopefully, right? Um, so before we dive into it, though, I want to share with you what is probably the most traumatic experience of my life. Okay? The most traumatic experience of my life. When I was in high school, when I was in high school, I was a part of this group called Young Life, right? That's how I met Jesus, okay? So my senior year, Young Life had a ski trip. And they came to me and they were like, hey, Scroggins, we want you to come with us. We know you can't afford it. So we've all chipped in and we paid for you to go on this ski trip, right? And I was stoked. I'd never been skiing before, right? And so... I am so excited to get on the plane. We fly to Winter Park, Colorado. I even spent my own money and bought like a new ski jacket. Like I thought it was really cool, right? And I was so stoked to go skiing, right? So we get there and I'm like, I don't know how to ski, guys. And they're like, oh, it's fine. It's easy. So I'm like, oh, great. Skiing is easy. Never mind the hundreds of people that have died doing it, but whatever. So I get paired up with this guy named Vinton Lee, right? Vinton is one of my buds. We're actually still friends. We're still in touch with each other. He lives in Colorado now. But Vinton was like, hey, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go with Scroggins and help him learn. Vinton was a good skier. He was one of those dudes who would go skiing every, like, winter. You know what I mean? He's, like, doing the double black diamonds, like, backflip mogul stuff, right? He's doing all that. And he was like, Scroggins, I'll help you, okay? So he... He thankfully was like, you don't need to go into the bunny class, right? But you need to start on the bunny slopes. So I'm like, okay, I'm an 18-year-old male. I don't mind skiing with five-year-old children. It's no problem. <laughs> so I'm like, Vinton, can you give me some pointers? He's like, sure. The number one thing that people mistake, the number one mistake that people make when they're learning to ski is they're afraid to go fast. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense, but I guess it kind of does. So I'm like, okay, but what if I get going too fast and I want to slow down? He goes, oh, well, you do this thing called a snowplow. You point your skis in and you slow down. I'm like, oh, that's how you do it. That sounds really cool. So we get to the, the slope and I'm, I'm excited, right? I'm like, okay, let's try. First, first, one, first trip down the mountain. We're way at the top, right? Because we're going to make the whole trip down, right? And, and so I'm getting up there and, and I start on like the, the green slope or whatever. And I, I like push off and I'm going. And Vinton is doing the whole, like, I'm a, I'm a good skier guy, back and forth kind of thing. And I'm like, that looks fancy, right? And then and I'm like, you know what? I'm getting a little too fast. I'm getting too close to the people in front of me. So I snowplow. Do you know what happened? My skis crossed and I hit the dirt, right? It was just like, it wasn't even like a fall. It was like a light switch. I was just like, I was upright, now I'm down. Like, upright, facing the snow. You know, like, happy, sad, just boom, done. Just gone, right? No worries. No worries. Everyone makes mistakes. I pop back up. And I'm like, hey, Vincent, that snowplow thing didn't work. And he's like, huh? And I'm like, okay. Maybe, maybe what I'm doing wrong is I'm not doing the turning thing. Maybe I need to do the turning thing. Maybe that's it, right? And so I try the turning thing, okay? And so I get back up, and I start skiing, okay? And I try and do the turning thing. But the problem is, you have to turn again, right? And so I did the turning thing, and I turned straight into a snowbank, right? And it was like a cartoon. There was a scrocking shape in the snow. It's like... <laughs> and I had to dig myself out, okay? Two crashes in like ten minutes. No big deal. We're still having fun. And then it gets worse. 
all I hear in my head is Vinton's going, hey, catch up. Hey, catch up. I'm like, okay. He's like, don't be afraid to go fast. He hasn't been watching clearly. Right? And so, so I'm like, okay, I'll just point my skis down. Right? And, and we'll just go for this. Right? We'll just go for it. And so I'm like, downhill. Right? And essentially what happens is I start using my butt as a brake. Right? That's my e-brake. Okay? Like snowplow, face plant, you know, try and turn, I fly off the thing, right? I'm just over it, right? And so eventually what starts happening is our, our first trip down one of the slopes turned into a cartoonish thing where, where Vinton is going at a normal human pace and I'm doing like the cartoon thing where I'm like, ah! <laughs> right? And I'm picking up my hat, my mitts, you know, my skis like 20 yards uphill. I got to go get it, you know? And by the time I get put back together, Vinton is caught up to me. He's like, you're doing great. I'm not. I wasn't. And then he keeps going and I'm like, ah! <laughs> Again. Okay? Have you ever been sitting in snow and seen your ski slide past you? Do you know how demoralizing that is? My ski can ski better than me. This is great, right? There's like five-year-olds that are like, hey, buddy, do you need some help? Shut up, kid! And then it starts snowing, okay? And then it starts snowing. And, and I remember distinctly, I'm trying to approach a sign so I can make sure I don't go down the wrong slope, right? And I'm getting close to this sign, but the snow, I can't see it. And then I realized I, I, I'm not good at stopping. So I literally skied into a sign. Just, but it wasn't a fast thing. It was a slow thing. So it was really sad. It was like, no, oh no, oh no, boom. Like any human being could have stopped except for me, right? And then, and then we find the right slope. Vinton's like, hey, you need to stay with me. We need to take this slope. It was a green-blue slope. Because it would be faster to get off the mountain in the heavy snowfall. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know if this is good. And he's like, no, we just need to get off the mountain. I should have stayed on the mountain. I should have just made an igloo and died there. It would have been better off. So I go flying down this slope. And at one point, there's like another slope meets my slope. And look, this is the only time I've gone skiing, so I, I, I will never do it again. And, and there was a bump so that people would slow down. There's like an embankment, right, F for this one that was oncoming, right? There was like blue diamond and then morons, right? And so I'm on the moron slope, and then there's this embankment where, it, you know, you go like they're slowing down the fast people. I went up the back of that. I went like, ah, right? Just boom. And... Vinton told me that what he saw was a blur of Scroggins flying by him, and then me go, skis head, skis head, skis head, and then a cloud of snow. Have you ever done a backflip? Have you ever done a backflip on skis? I have. Guess what? I didn't land it. It hurt. Right? I get put back together, and then I'm like, Vin's like, hey, you got you to gotta learn how to do the turning thing, okay? 
And I feel like this is just a comedy of errors. At this point, I'm like, you're mocking me, right? So I, I try and do the turn thing to regulate my speed. I end up skiing literally into a tree. I hit a tree, right? And I remember blacking out for a moment. And then I woke up and I was like neck deep in snow. And I was like, I don't know how to get out of this. It took me like 30 minutes to dig myself out. And remember, it's still snowing, you know? So I have snow in every part of my body. The ski jacket didn't work. It was all of lie, just like all of this, right? And so I'm finally on the last leg to get down the mountain because we went all the way to the top like a bunch of morons, right? So I finally get to the last leg, and I'm skiing, and I'm like, I'm just doing like, okay, too fast, sit down. Too fast, sit down. You know, I look like an idiot. And, and then I meet the rest of the group on this last slope, okay? And they're like, Scroggins, how's it going? And I turn to look to see who's talking to me. It was the girl that I asked to prom. <laughs> Do you see where this is going? Because I went right into her. So I look and then inadvertently turn into her and clip her skis and send her flying. I went flying. And then I was like, I'm so sorry. She's like, oh, no problem. She gets back up. She skis away. And then this was the moment that broke me. As if all those other, mo- other moments didn't break me. This one broke me. A 70-year-old woman <laughs> skied up to me, stopped, looked at me and goes, you need to get the F off the slopes. But she didn't say F. She said, have you had a septuagenarian cuss at you on the slopes? Because I have. After that, I walked down the slope, right? We get to the bottom. Everybody's like, Scroggins, what did you think? And I was like, I'm going to kill the man that invented skiing. (laughs) Who in their right mind stands on the top of a mountain and said, you know what would be cool? Tying two sticks to my feet and sliding down this thing. What kind of an idiot thinks that's okay? I'm offended. I want to go slap everyone in Norway. So we get down to the bottom, and everyone's like, Scroggins, how was it? And I was like, I didn't really enjoy it. In fact, I hurt because I hit a tree. And they're like, oh, Scroggins. (laughs) And Vinton was like, it was hilarious. (laughs) Watching Scroggins ski was probably the best thing I've done with my life. (laughs) Right? And then after lunch, everyone's like, hey, we need to repartner up, change partners if you want. Everyone on the team... Literally, they're like, hey, let's, do you want to switch partners? Everyone on the team, like, at the same time was like, we want to be partners with Scroggins. I went to my room, and I didn't ski again. And I will never ski again. So that's my skiing story, right? So I think somebody, somebody was like, hey, are we going to do, like, a ski trip with Chi Alpha? And I was like, no, we will never do it. So if you're wondering, does Scroggins want to ski? The answer is no, right? But there was something about like the way that Vinton described skiing with me as my ski partner that like made people want to partake of that. Isn't that weird? Right? Like, sure, it was a bit for the entertainment value, but but the way he described it made others want to join in on the fun. Isn't that cool? When really, it probably wasn't actually that fun for him. You know, have you ever like gone out with a toddler? You know, have you ever gone to places with a child? And you're constantly, I do it a lot. 
You know, shout out to my wife. We're constantly like, don't touch that. No, don't fall over. Why are you doing these things, right? That must have been how Vinton felt, right? Scroggins, where are you going? Scroggins, there's a sign. You can clearly stop. You're going very slow. Why, why did you hit the sign? It was so slow, right? <laughs> the sign doesn't move. You could have just ducked. And that's true. I could have, but I was trying to read. <laughs> it literally hit me like square in the forehead. Just doop. It couldn't have been that fun for him, right? He could have been going down slopes that were fun and challenging for him, but he didn't, right? He chose to see what was fun and see the joy in skiing, being my, my ski buddy, as it were. Definitely wasn't a ski instructor. <clears throat> so Vinton found what was actually good and fun about that trip, and that's what he brought to light. That's what he focused on. Does that make sense? So, in the same way, Jesus focused on this woman. Isn't that cool? So, there's a lot of things a woman could have done right and could have done different. Just like there was a lot of things that Venton could have done differently, right? He could have done something else, but he chose to ski with me and even to, like, see what was fun about it, Right? So Jesus did for this woman. So this woman could have done a lot of different things. In fact, she did a lot of things wrong. So uh, she interrupted this meal that she wasn't invited to. That should have been the first thing that you picked up when you're reading this. Right? She just heard Jesus was eating somewhere and invited herself. Right? Well, culturally, at that time, there wasn't a lot to do. And so if important people were having a meal, you were allowed to, like, go to the house and kind of, like, stand on the back wall and watch them eat, right? And so they kind of be like leaning on their left shoulder with their feet away from the table and kind of reaching up and eating like that. And that's how she got access to his feet, right? But she shouldn't have been interrupting that meal. She should have been on the wall if she was invited to watch. She should have been on that wall, quiet and listening, not interacting at all. Does that make sense? And this woman actually shouldn't have even been there, right? We know from the other gospel accounts, this story is retold in Matthew and Mark and in John. We know from the other gospel accounts that she was a prostitute, right? And apparently a really, really notorious one. Because Jesus was known to hang out with these people. But she was so bad that everybody was like, even her, Jesus? Really? You're going to let her touch you? Does that make sense? I mean, really, think about this. Like, just previously in the chapter, they're complaining to Jesus about who he hangs out with. And he's like, yeah, I do. I do hang out with the, those bad types. But this woman somehow was noteworthy, even though he had already justified what he was doing. By the time they get together for this meal and this woman shows up, they're all like, okay, we can understand those other people, but this one? Wow. Wow. She shouldn't have even been there. She should have been doing something else. Right? Another thing that jumped out to me when I, when I was studying this is that she used the means of her trade to honor Jesus. Did you catch that? So think about it. In this time, a bath was like 
an annual celebration. Right? You didn't bathe anywhere near the neighborhood of regularly, right? If regular bathing is earth, what they were doing was like Saturn. Does that make sense? Right? And so if you're in the business that she was in, if you're in the prostitution thing and you haven't bathed in about two years, perfume is super important to you. That, in fact, that's going to be like the number one thing you need. So to put it in perspective for us in terms that maybe we can relate to better, her honoring Jesus with her perfume would be a bit like a prostitute donating her lingerie to a pastor. Here, pastor, you can use this. Pick it up with like tongs. Thanks. Right to the fireplace. Right? And lastly, this is something that is pointed out in Matthew and Mark's, in John's version of this event, is that the, the perfume she used was incredibly expensive. Incredibly expensive. They said it, it's worth about a half of a week's wage of an average worker at the time. For us, that's about 500 bucks. $500. And she poured it on his feet. Like one of the protests that brought up in the other gospel accounts is, hey, shouldn't we have just taken that, sold it, and then given the money to the poor? That, that makes sense to me. Wouldn't that have been better? Don't you think? So there was a lot of things that this woman did wrong. There's a lot of things that she could have done differently and perhaps should have. But Jesus didn't call attention to that. Just like Vincent didn't call attention to how I couldn't even snowplow correctly without breaking my front teeth. Instead, Jesus focused on what she did that was good and right. Sure, she came in and she broke like a titanic load of social customs. But man, did she ever love Jesus well. In fact, this very act in this singular moment could have been the only honorable thing about this woman. This could have been the only honorable thing about her, but it was still honorable. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-six thirteen, Matthew twenty uh, chapter twenty-six is where his account of this interaction happens. Jesus says this: "Truly, I tell you." Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. When you talk about bestowing honor on somebody, I don't think it gets much better than that. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the earth says, hey, I promise anyone that talks about me is going to talk about you doing this. That's honor. Isn't that awesome? So imagine her knowing that she broke all these social customs, knowing the type of life that she had lived, and just trying to do something to show Jesus how much she loved him. Imagine the dignity that gave her when she heard him say those words. Could you imagine that? 
Can you put yourself in her shoes and just imagine that feeling? Do you think that maybe in that moment that she realized she was worth so much more than the pleasure her body could provide? That maybe, just maybe, she had value outside of what she could use her body for. And it was all because Jesus honored her. He ignored all those things that were going wrong and focused on what was right. Even if it was just that one thing. And apparently, tradition tells us that this was maybe a turning point for her. In the Gospel of John, John identifies her as Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was one of the three women at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Mary Magdalene was one of the leaders of the early church. And if you read any of the early church fathers' writings, they will reference her. Isn't that amazing? Just one simple act of honoring one simple act. And look at the life change that is possible. See, honor is not flattery, right? You're not just buttering somebody's toast, you know what I mean? And you're also not making things up. It really, this is a contention point for me. When you honor somebody, you're not making things up. You're not lying. You're simply shining, on, shining a light on what's already there. Right? If you came to me and you were like trying to honor me, and you're like, Scroggins, man, you are, you are a good-looking guy. I will know that you're lying. That's not honor. Because... I look in the mirror more than once a day, and I definitely lose my appetite more than once a day. You're like, uh, time to wake up in the morning. Whoa. Just kidding. But if you were to come to me and say, hey, Scroggins, that lesson you taught at LTC this morning, that was good. Oh, thanks. That is honoring. Does that make sense? You're not, we're not making things up when you honor people. Because that's not honor. In fact, honor is not honor if it lacks honesty. Honor is not honor if it lacks honesty. Honor does not mean that you hide or bury things that are wrong. Honor does not mean that you hide or bury things that are wrong. If somebody has done something dishonorable... They've dishonored themselves. That is not to say that it is your job to shine a light on that. But it is your job to shine a light on what they have done well. Does that make sense? Or to steal a phrase from Paul. Honor is finding whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, in bringing notice to those things. That is what honor is. Is finding what is excellent or praiseworthy in bringing notice to it. Does that make sense? 
we see from this interaction between Mary Magdalene and Jesus that honor can change your reputation. It can change your future. Honor can change the way that people think about you. And honor can change the way that you think about yourself. So, um, I don't know how many of y'all have gotten to meet my daughter, right? Uh, my daughter Finnegan, uh, she's the only girl we have, so I cherish her greatly, right? She is 100% girl, like just little girl, 100%. There's, there's no variation in there. She loves fairy tales. She loves Disney movies, right? I have heard Frozen 2 sung by a 10-year-old more times than I can count already. And that movie's only been out for a couple months, right? Good Lord, into the unknown. Anyway. <laughs> but her favorite Disney princess is Belle from Beauty and the Beast, right? And I think she has a lot in common with Belle because my daughter loves to read. She almost always has a book with her, right? And she loves to sing, and she's getting better at that, praise God, Right? <laughs> And so she loves Beauty and the Beast. She loves that story because it has her hero in it. It's somebody that she can relate to, right? When I, when I look at the story of Beauty and the Beast, I'm like super cynical. Anybody like kind of jaded? You know, that's okay. So I watch Beauty and the Beast and I look at a movie and I'm like, or a story. I'm like, that's a story about Stockholm Syndrome. That's not okay. That's a story of a captive, like being brainwashed and falling in love with a captor. That's terrible. We should not be celebrating this. But that's because I'm jaded and terrible, right? <laughs> G.K. Chesterton says this, There is a great lesson in Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. Let me say that again. There is the great lesson of Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. That's what my daughter sees in that story. And if a child can get it, I should get that too. To love someone is to choose for their highest good. To choose for their highest good, you must value them above yourself. To honor someone is to give them value. So, if you love something, you will honor it. If you really do love something, you will honor it. And if a thing must be loved before it is lovable, it follows that a thing must be honored before it is honorable. A thing must be honored before it is honorable. Just like Vinton saw what was honorable about being my ski partner and made everybody else on the trip want that position when they had no business wanting it. You see that? He honored me and then made other people want to join in. That honor that he gave me made other people want to join in. Does that make sense? It is interesting that the Hebrew word for honor is kavod. And it actually comes from a root word that means weightiness or heaviness. Right? So when you honor something, you give it weight. Right? And in my head, I envision like a puddle, right? A depression in the ground. And when water falls, 
it runs into the low place. Does that make sense? And the more weight, the more water that gathers there, the deeper the, the ground sinks and the more water is pulled towards it. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of weird, but that's the image that it evokes in my head, is that when I was honored by Vinton, it made more honor gather to me. Because nothing is honorable before it's first honored. So we've been preaching about loving one another better and treating one another with value and dignity. And then last week, Pam came out of left field and smacked y'all up the head with an amazing sermon about dying to self. Wasn't that good? So good. But here's what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to be unselfish. I don't want you to be unselfish. Because that's a stupid word. Right? Unselfish. That's like, the problem is selfishness. We all know that, right? And so if we remove the self, the problem's gone. But then you're just left with ishness. Right? What I want you to be is I want you to be selfless. Selfless. Less of you. Does that make sense? Another way to say this is humility. Humility. Andrew Murray says this, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me. And when I am blamed or despised, oh, when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door And kneel to my Father in secret, and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Let me read that again. This is what it means to be selfless. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. To be so emptied of self that you are selfless. Does that make sense? So like Pam said, in order to become this person, to become selfless, you have to die to your rights. The rights of acceptance, the rights of accomplishment, the right of provision, the right of possession, the right of safety, the right of security. You have to die to these rights in order to become selfless. To truly honor someone can only come when you are emptied of self. To truly honor someone can only come when you are emptied of self. See, the woman with the alabaster jar no longer cared about any of these things. She didn't care that people didn't accept her. She didn't care what she had accomplished. 
She, she was sacrificing literally her provision and her possession. She was giving up her safety by being somewhere where she shouldn't be. And she was giving up her security by revealing herself and showing the world what she was about. She no longer cared about any of those things. But here's the thing. She was probably the only one in the whole world that properly honored Jesus. Do you see that? Because she had given up all of those rights, she was the only one in the whole world that properly saw Jesus for who he was and afforded him the honor he deserved. She was so emptied of self, she was so selfless, that the only thing left for her was to honor what was honorable. The only thing left for her was to honor what was honorable. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is what Jesus meant. To be selfless is to only give. To be selfless is to only give. So could you imagine a community, a group of believers, of friends, that is so lost to themselves that they only give of themselves to one another? How life-giving would that be if we were so dead to ourself, so selfless, that the only thing left was to honor one another? And here's the crazy thing. In a community like this, if we are able to accomplish that, all of the rights that you died to and gave up, quit striving to provide for yourself, all of those rights are met by the people around you. Do you see that? Let's have the worship team come back up, please. I mean, think about it. If you honor others and others are honoring you, you can only provide the acceptance for yourself, but what would it be like if a hundred people provide the acceptance that you desire? What would it be like if a hundred people affirm all the accomplishments that you have made instead of you affirming them for yourself? What would it be like if a hundred people provide for you the provision you need because they see you as more worthy and deserving of it than you, than themselves. Does that make sense? What would it be like if instead of providing for possession for yourself, you're able to provide possession for everyone around you, and then they, a hundred people, provide possession for you? I don't want it. You have it. You deserve it more. Could you imagine hearing that a hundred times? What would that do to your heart? Instead of you fighting for safety and security and wrestling with those insecurities that you feel that rage against you, imagine if you just became selfless and everyone affirmed those insecurities. A hundred people telling you, nah, that, that voice in your ear is not true. What would that do? 
See, that which you gave up, the things that you died to, you received back many times over because you have hundreds providing for you. Do you see that? Does that make sense to you? If we only become selfless and honor those around us, then they will honor what is honorable in us. Luke 6, 38. Jesus says this, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's true. Just like that woman died to all of her rights, emptied herself to honor Jesus. And now she's receiving honor from literally billions of people throughout history and around the globe. All of those rights that she died to were restored to her, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. And it can be true for us if we but will it. All we have to do is do it. So in response, you don't need to have any big altar call or anything. This is just something for us to consider. I believe this is an area where we can grow. Where we can honor one another with a selfless love. What do y'all think? So I'll pray, we'll sing a song of response, and then we'll let y'all get out of here.